minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday Erev Shabbos Haggadol. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program.
Yeah. 
J.M. in the A.M. Yidel with uh, Shabbos uh, with the Werdigers and Kol Mekadesh. Before that, the Yeshiva Boys had Curry Bone. Uh, Ellie Gerstner and Yossi Newman were here yesterday. They're getting ready for their big concert coming up Thursday night, Cholamoid. That's at Queens College. Uh, Yitzchak Mayer Helfgott with uh, Yitzchak Perlman and Tal off of Eternal Echoes. Lipa had Kaf al Kaf, done by Mendy Werdiger and Lachado D done by Raya Mehemna. And Regesh Modani opening things up. And we say good morning. It's Friday on this April 11th, the 11th of Nissan, proudly uh, broadcasting legally from our uh, beautiful studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Achrei Mos, Erev Shabbos Agadol, with candlelighting time at 7.12 on this Erev Shabbos. 7.12 is candlelighting. On this Erev Shabbos Agadol, many synagogues begin earlier. In fact, I spoke to someone yesterday who actually goes to a 6.15 Mincha today. I guess that's around Plaga Mincha time. Uh, a lot of synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. 55 degrees, 52% humidity, winds are west at 6 miles per hour. Showers today with a high 68 and rain tonight, low 48. Tomorrow, partly cloudy, a high Shabbos, 68 degrees. We're at 77 in Yerushalayim, we're at uh, 55 here in Jersey City as we wake up on a Friday Erev Shabbos at JM and the AM. The big holiday, Pesach, begins Monday night. Monday will be live from down in Florida for the Erev Pesach show. Rabbi Goldwasser will join us. He will conduct a seum on the air, which is a custom. Um, whether the seum we do on the air would exempt a firstborn from fasting on Monday is something you should ask your local rabbi, but we will present it since that's the custom of the Jewish people to have siyumim, uh, completion celebrations of tractates and uh, sdarim of Mishnayis uh, on Erev Pesach. Matis will be hosting JM Sunday this coming Sunday between 7 and 9 a.m. on our stream. Make sure to be tuned in for that. And... Um, We have great programming all day long on our stream at jmtheam.org, including an amazing music mix for Erev Shabbos HaGadol, with a big thank you to our friends at Royal Wine. And um, Naomi Nachman is going to be uh, doing a great Erev Shabbos HaGadol show, which you'll be able to hear and see on the NahumSiegel.com website, starting at 9 o'clock this morning, right after JM in the AM. So there's a lot going on. I know folks are very busy. I thank you for tuning us in, for turning us on, for making sure to be listening around the world uh, to what we're doing here as we get closer and closer to the big holiday of Pesach 5774. It's JM in the AM, and this is the great Ben Sion Schenker.
vlastne kabelo. Friedman off of his um, B'nai Hechala Shabbos of Benny Friedman CD. Before that, Eitan Katz, Yifrach, live in Jerusalem, Ben Sion Schenker, the amazing new CD entitled Halel Vizimra with the Hisha Amda and Halachma Anya. Friday morning on this 11th of April, 11th of Nissan. Happy birthday, Gavri Siegel! Anybody who sees Gavri Siegel today, make sure to give him a big, big birthday greeting. On this uh, 11th of April. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Achremos, Erev Shabbos Haggadol, candle lighting at 712. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are today. Or by Goldwasser Shabbos Haggadol Drasha, the Shulamis School. Uh, in Brooklyn, New York, 5.45 tomorrow, 5.45 tomorrow for the Shabbos HaGadol Drusha. 
You could check that out. Showers today with a high of 68, and this is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world in the web, jmtheam.org. Seems we're having some trouble with our feed of uh, our newscast from Israel. We'll see if we can get it started. Oh, there we go. We actually got it started, thank goodness. Matis hosts JM Sunday this coming Sunday starting at 12 noon. Uh, starting at 12 noon. <laughs> starting at 7 a.m. Eastern time on the stream. JMTheAM.org. <laughs> Make sure to be tuned in to Matis. Monday we'll do our Erev Pesach show. Rabbi Goldwasser will join us for a Seum. We'll be down in Florida at Legendary Destinations when the Pesach, uh, when the Erev Pesach show starts at 6 a.m. Monday morning. So get ready for that. No jam in the AM on Tuesday and Wednesday because a Yuntif will be back Thursday, Cholomoid, on the air. Make sure to be tuned in. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday is next. Boker Tov from Jam in the AM. Galitzal, הדוקטור רון פונדק, אחד מאדריכלי הסכם אוסלו, הלך הבוקר לעולמו והוא בן 59. פונדק שימש במשך שנים ארוכות כמגשר בין ההנהגה הישראלית לזו הפלסטינית בערוצים גלויים ובעיקר חשאיים. כתבתנו אליל שחר. פונדק הלך היום לעולמו לאחר מאבק ממושך במחלת הסרטן. בשנות ה-90 הוא ייסד ערוץ שיחות חשאיים הפלסטינים שהוביל בסופו של דבר להסכמי אוסלו. לפני כשנה פרסם ספר שתיעד את התהליך שהביא לחתימה על ההסכם בספטמבר 93. שרת המשפטים ציפי לבני ספדה לו. רון פונדק זה הציוני שחלם שלום ולחם שלום. הוא עשה את זה עד יומו האחרון ומעולם לא נרתע, לא מהציניקנים, לא מהמיואשים ובטח לא מהקיצונים. יהי זכרו ברוך. הדוקטור יוסי ביילין, שפונדק שימש כשליחו לשיחות החשאיות בהיותו סגן שר החוץ בממשלת רבין, סיפר עליו בשיחה עם גלי צה"ל. אני לא מכיר הרבה אנשים כמו רון. בארבע השנים האחרונות לחייו הוא נלחם גם על עצם החיים. ובמקביל הוא גם לא ויתר על התהליך המדיני עם כל האכזבות. הוא יחסר לנו מאוד, גם כאדם וגם כמה שהוא ייצד ומה שהוא עשה. סיעת הבית היהודי אישרה פה אחד את החלטת היושב ראש נפתלי בנט לפרוש מהקואליציה אם ישוחררו מחבלים ערבים ישראלים במסגרת הסכם עם הפלסטינים. כתבנו עידן קבלר. בתום ישיבת סיעת הבית היהודי הודיעה המפלגה לאחר דיון מקיף בהידרדרות המדינית שחלה בימים האחרונים החליטה הסיעה לאמץ את הודעתו של יושב ראש המפלגה בנט מאמש. הגיע הזמן, כך נכתב, להחזיר את כוח העמידה למדינת ישראל. אבל בכירים בבית היהודי טוענים שאין זו הודעה על מנת לפרוש באמת, אלא רק ללחוץ על ליברמן ומפלגות אחרות להתנגד לעסקה לשחרור רוצחים ערבים ישראלים, וכך למעשה להישאר בממשלה. ביצהר תוקפים בחריפות את החלטת צה"ל להשתלט על הישיבה בהתנחלות, בעוד בצבא אומרים שזהו מענה ביטחוני לאלימות נגד כוחות הביטחון. כתבנו עידו בן בג'י. זהו מעשה היסטרי והיסטורי נמסר מהיישוב יצהר. הפיכת ישיבה לבסיס צבאי היא חציית גבולות ברורה. האם מסגד הקורא להשמדת ישראל היה זוכה ליחס דומה שעלו ביישוב? 
בישיבת עוד יוסף חי שנסגרה, הבטיחו הבוקר להמשיך לקיים לימודים במקום אחר. קולה של הישיבה הלך וגבר למרות ההתנכלויות הנמשכות מצד השלטונות. אנו קוראים לכל אוהבי התורה למחות על הפשע, לשון תגובת הישיבה. בצהריים הורה בית המשפט המחוזי בירושלים לשחרר שלושה מן העצורים החשודים במעורבות באלימות ביצהר, תוך הרחקתם מן ההתנחלות. כדורגל, מי יתמודד ראש בראש בחצי גמר ליגת האלופות? כתבנו רועי לוינגר. בשלב חצי הגמר שהתחיל ב-22 באפריל תשחק אלופת אירופה ביירן מינכן מול ריאל מדריד. בחצי הגמר השני פגשו צ'לסי ואתלטיקו מדריד שהדיחה בשלב רבע הגמר את ברצלונה. תחזית מזג האוויר, עלייה בטמפרטורות, אלה החדשות שעורכת נעמה שוחט בצוות הודיה קוסלובסקי ואבי כהן.
I told Yochi Briskman that that might be the best song on the new Shweki album. He was shocked, but he also said that uh, it seems everybody has their own song that they feel are the uh, absolute best song on the Kolot CD. Just amazing. Uh, that's called Kamu Vaneha uh, here at JM in the AM. The uh, Maccabees had Draw Yikra off the brand new CD, One Day More. It's a Friday at Riff Shabbos. Anybody have school today? Maybe somebody does. I know some of the hardworking teachers out there on their way to school today. That I could tell you. Malcolm Honeline, a half hour from now, our weekly update will explore the events of this amazing week. Every week's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we'll speak with him coming up and get our pre-Pesach message from him at some point. There is so much going on in this world, it's just unbelievable. Uh, anyway, that discussion will be coming up right here at JM in the AM. I noticed on Twitter we have uh, 1,899 followers at Nahum Siegel Net. You could be the 1,900th right now. Nahum Siegel Net, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L-N-E-T, has 1,899 right now. Did I mention you could be the 1,900th? And I noticed on Facebook we are just, just under 4,000 likes on Jewish Radio World with Nahum Siegel. If you've never liked it, do me a favor. I would love to walk into the upcoming holiday at 4,000 likes. That would be a great goal to achieve. So if you've never uh, considered liking Jewish Radio World with Nahum Siegel, please not only consider it, but act on your consideration. And... um and become one of our likers on Facebook. And I thank you for that. Quarter after 7 o'clock, it's JM in the AM, getting closer and closer to the big holiday. Pesach begins Monday night. We'll be down in Florida Monday morning doing our Erev Shabbos show. The Seum with Rabbi Goldwasser will take place about this time, about 7.15. Uh, whether you as a firstborn can rely on that Seum to um, exempt you from uh, fasting on Monday, that's something you should ask your local rabbi. Jam in the AM with the Ellie Schwabel.
it's about what you do, do you love what you do, do you put all you got into it? Everybody's got something that they love, but they just can't find a way. Show your link, link, show your link, link, show your link. Come on, you're a dog, but come on, you're a god. You're a god, you're a god, you're a god, you're a god, you're a god. You've got the Boy, it must be late 
Thank you. 
J.M. in the A.M., 12 minutes before 8 o'clock on a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos HaGadol here at J.M. in the A.M. Uh, weekly update coming up in a second, and uh, next week we will not convene for a weekly update here at J.M. in the A.M. Next week will be Erev Shabbos Cholomoid. We are planning, and Malcolm is planning, on being with us on the 25th of April, which will be the Friday after Yontif, and I'm sure there'll be uh, there'll be plenty to talk about that day once the entire holiday of Pesach has passed, and that is our schedule here at JM in the AM Friday morning on this Erev Shabbos Hagadol, candle lighting at seven twelve. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Don't forget, Matas will be doing JM Sunday on Sunday morning at seven a.m. Eastern Time on our stream at jmtheam.org. We'll broadcast Monday's Erev Pesach show from down in Florida. Rabbi Goldwasser will present a siyum. Whether that siyum exempts you, a firstborn, from fasting on the Monday or not, you can consult with your local rabbi. I want to thank our uh, friends at jewishworldreview.com. Go there and print out a million articles before Pesach so you can be well informed over the holiday. Uh, they continue to uh, highly recommend to our listeners, or to their readers, I should say, our incredible live stream at jmnam.org, and I thank them at jewishworldreview.com. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, good morning to you. You, to be you. you sound a little too chipper for uh, this close to Pesach. This is a very... Uh, a very uh, tense and uh, and hustle-bustle type of time in our community. Are you getting that feeling that people are preparing and busily getting ready for Monday night's big Pesach Seder? I think it's much more than a feeling. You, see, uh, you know, I saw a thing where it said, uh, the rabbi said, and uh, we, were, we were once slaves in <laughs> Egypt, and the women say, we were once slaves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It is one time carry the burden, and I feel guilty complaining when I'm not even around for Pesach. But it is uh, one tough holiday, it seems, for everybody, no matter what they're doing. I guess uh, to different degrees. Well, Jacob Birnbaum has passed away, who helped launch the uh, student struggle for Soviet Jury. Died Wednesday at the age of 87. I would assume, Malcolm, that this is somebody who you spent a lot of time with over the years. Well, I- I'm glad that we have the opportunity here to say something about him. Because there's a whole generation that grew up, that is growing up, that doesn't know his name, and uh, especially a theme for um, for Mr. 
Mitzrayim and the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the, the, um, if anybody or any movement really related to the Chag of Pesach, it was the Soviet Jewry movement whose theme was Shalachat Ami, let my people go, Abduni, so that it should be able to, to serve me, that the, um, whole theme on the underlying principles and essence of Pesach was reflected in a way in the Soviet Jewry movement, and he was the true father of the movement. I had the privilege yesterday to speak at his uh, Levaya, and an even greater privilege that on Tuesday I was able to visit him in the hospital and to talk to him. And the thing he took pride in, what he told me in his really gasping um, uh, speech and uh, very difficult and belabored speech, was to talk to me about the young people who come to his shul, the shul where he davens, um, Mount Sinai Jewish Center in Washington Heights. And he said, hundreds come. And they recalled events of 30 years ago when we were young and uh, when I was very young and I first came to him and uh, when the Soviet Jewry movement was aborting and uh, came from Philadelphia to visit him to get materials. And he was the inspiration. He carried the burden. He took a lot of uh, flack uh, over the years for, for what he did. And, and today... He's not he's not remembered in the way that he should be, and and you know it's appropriate that it's Achrei Mos this week. They used to say Achrei Mos Kedoshim Emor, the next three parshas, that after people die, then they say Kedoshim to you. We don't say it in people's lifetime. We don't pay them the proper tribute. So, and he was really a martyr, a hero, who rescued Jewish children during World War II, worked with them in Morocco and other places, and. Brought and, and created the movement, and he recognized the, the need and really inspired people. And I said that I think a Kaddish Baruch Hu say that we'll have a special place for for Yaakov Birnbaum, uh, who will get a seat and remind the Kaddish Baruch Hu about the, all the years that we kept an empty seat for Soviet Jews who couldn't celebrate and who couldn't mark a seder uh, in their, on their own, and that uh, he will be able to say Chasal Sidur Pesach that he Kihel Chaso that he lived his life in, in a modest, austere fashion. Uh, he did not want any worldly goods. It was not his thing. He cared only about achieving these objectives. And I think, uh, so on Pesach, those of who remember the Soviet Jewry movement uh, should recall him, think about him, tell the children about him, tell them about the movement to remind them and that, that we not take things for granted. You know, those who look at the story of Pesach and say, you know, it was because of a famine we went down to Mitzrayim, if they don't see the pattern of history and God's hand in all of it, then they're missing the whole message of, of Pesach and of the miracle and of, the, of how young people should then learn the lessons and confront them today. You know, <clears throat> and all of us who are inspired by all those activities, uh, you know, wear it with great pride. I remember when Yosef Mendelevich was here, I said to him, I, I said to him proudly, do you know how cold I was across in the Soviet mission on Hanukkah, how my hands were freezing and I was practically getting frostbite, you know, recalling with pride that as a kid I was able to participate in all of this. And by the way, you mentioned Pesach and, and, and the irony or, or the coincidence of Jacob Birnbaum passing away this week as the holiday approaches. How many Soviet Jews identified with their tradition and heritage only because of this holiday? I spoke about the hundreds of thousands, maybe even more, because we're already into the third generation of, of Jews who were able to leave the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, people who may be the future Soviet Union again, given the events, uh, and are at a Seder 
are leading a Seder, their children or grandchildren are, are at Sadarim because of the Soviet Jewry movement and his efforts and the efforts of many people who devoted their lives to it, who, who lived and breathed. And by the way, not just the theme of freedom. The matzah was dear to people. They were able to get it at that time, and you were there I before. I matzahs, and I went to Russia. We, we all brought in things, uh, sidurim, that were so prized, let alone a machzer, let alone other things that young people today all take for granted. And you say how cold you were across uh, from the Soviet mission. His answer should have been how cold he was <laughs> in Siberia. Malcolm, when you're in the lap of luxury in the U.S. and you're a 13-year-old, you know, close to frostbitten hands makes an impression on you, okay? <laughs> you're you're right that, that he did have it much rougher, that's for sure. Uh, the other thing was that... Um, I guess if we're going to point to the, what, mid-60s for the beginning of all this, right, 64, 65? Exactly. So the culmination of the climax, I guess you'd have to put at the big rally at the end of 1987, right? That it's Right, if you if you take the, the history. activities reached an apex at that point. Right. And, uh, yes. And I, again, in the innocence of youth, looking back, I remember, and I was already on the air at that time, I remember saying that I felt it was a mistake to abolish Solidarity Sunday because there were so many other countries, and we see it today, as you know, there are so many other countries where Jews have difficulty either living or conditions where they live under the tyrannical regimes are so difficult that I think we need an annual gathering like that. And wouldn't you agree, as we look at con- countries like Iran and others, where we know that either Jews can't get out or find it difficult to do so, or whatever the circumstances are, uh, that, that it, it would be nice to have a movement that stood up and spoke out for Jews like that around the world. As the person who initiated Solidarity Sunday, I certainly agree that it was of unique importance and significance and became an event beyond just the cause. It became a time when Jews could march with pride right. and proclaim their Judaism and do it in a dignified but demonstrative way, and it inspired the efforts later that we did for Syrian Jews, Ethiopian Jews, Iranian Jews. Part of the problem is that we have succeeded, and we don't, you know, we, we uh, rescued the Jews from Yemen, from all the places where they were endangered, and that this generation doesn't grow up with it, nor do they respond to the call to, to act when we would have instant demonstrations because of something that happened in the former Soviet Union, and People would be summoned to come to Isaiah Wall, come to the U.N., come to other places, local communities doing events, people in their own homes doing things to, to promulgate it, let alone in the schools and in shuls, and having signs outside thousands of synagogues, you know, free Soviet Jews. Uh, today, when we called people to come, when Ahmadinejad came, I mean, the, this guy who embodies all of the terrible things in Iran that is uh, the Mitzrayim of today, uh, and worse in some respects, um, that, that people don't heed it. They don't have the same motivation and the same, uh, I don't know, that, that maybe it's because of the different era, because of media, because of so many things, that it's fallen out of fashion and since we did the big rally in, in Washington. So I agree that, that you need to think to some event where Jews can come together across all borders, across all boundaries. I mean, it's the lesson from the Horban that they that this ability to reach out and, and to, to stop all the divisions between us, or at least one day a year, and come together. And, and uh, that's what's happening at many Sadarim. People don't know, but how many Sadarim do you have? Orthodox and non-Orthodox, observant, non-observant, all sorts of people coming together 
because of the common bonds that really exist between all of us. Yeah, no question about it. And there's a natural segue here, which I'll get to in a second, but it seems, especially before holiday time, that sometimes I ignore some of the events of the week and either reminisce or analyze different things with you. To that end, you mentioned the future Soviet Union, and I know obviously there's some tongue-in-cheek uh, when you say that, but it, but you are recommending, and you do this on a regular basis on this show, you are recommending that Jews, for instance, who live in Iran should uh, seriously consider getting out ASAP. Is that a message, even to a small degree, that you might give to Jews who are now in the former states of the Soviet Union? I think that uh, for, for many of them, uh, the choice is becoming more and more stark. We see the number of people in, in individual cities, 25, 30 people a day, applying for Aliyah, uh, that, the, that many of them are reading the handwriting on the wall. We do not know at this point what the future will be whether for the 15, 17,000 Jews in Crimea, for instance, or the Jews in eastern Ukraine or Jews in other places. Uh, we see the, the tension around Kharkov, which has a significant Jewish community. And there is an option, and there is the opportunity that people have today that they didn't have, you know, 70 years ago to go to Israel. Israel's welcoming them. Israel has people in these countries to, to sign them up. Some will come to America. Some have family in America. But I think anybody who, who would advise people to just to sit and stay, I think, is taking a big risk. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. And we remember Jacob Yaakov Birnbaum passed away at the age of 87. And as uh, Malcolm described, Certainly somebody to be looked upon as a, a modern Jewish hero. By the way, a moment ago, and here's the natural segue that people were probably waiting for, you mentioned that we need an event for Jews to come together. Uh, you know when that event is in New York, and that's, of course, June 1st up Fifth Avenue to celebrate Israel Parade. Now, full disclosure, of course, everyone knows the parade people have been really nice to us here, and we have an incredible relationship with them, and I'm sure people think that, that, that therefore, it's one of the reasons that my uh, opinion is the way it is. But all that notwithstanding, I understand all the sensitivities with the BDS, and I understand all the feelings of certain rabbis, rabbinic leaders, and other leaders uh, on the right who are really upset about certain people participating. But, Malcolm, I still believe, and I think we said this last year, I don't remember if you agreed or not, but you'll tell me if you did, I still believe that even if certain people are invited who may not be exactly the uh, of the opinion that we are, if someone wants to come and celebrate Israel, we should certainly not be the ones to tell them not to. And on top of that, it shouldn't affect our participation in an event like that. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, while we can't just say that everybody is welcome to everything, no matter what views you profess, it's, but this is an occasion to demonstrate unity and to to show uh, solidarity with Israel, and uh, there's nobody who's going to be manifesting uh, the, I think, objectionable views that, that people have raised. And um, look, it's it's uh, you know it's a very tense time now. We see the, the tensions on campuses, and too often it's between Jew and Jew uh, over some of these issues. And I think misguided people who who are young people who don't know the history, don't know the reality, who join. Uh, BDS or protests or, you know, the delegitimization campaign. Uh, I heard about it this week on a New York City campus, uh, a very intense debate of uh, within the campus about 
bringing uh, people who, who take anti-Israel view. It doesn't mean people who are critical of Israel's government from the left or from the right. It means those who take the kind of positions on uh, boycotting Israel or things like that, that, that uh, would be objectionable. But the parade, it should be a time, and, and uh, maybe causing so much uh, focus on it only encourages or, or yeah. will bring more people. May- by the way, I, if I might just say that uh, uh, my long-term associate, Carolyn Green, lost her mother this week. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. We had, uh, and the Levi was this week, so I want to be Menachem Alvon to let everybody know she'll be sitting Shiva this weekend in New York. Um, really want to get also one of the unsung great people. No, oh, no question about it. Sorry to hear that. And uh, Carolyn and her family should certainly uh, uh, be comforted this time. And we should share only good occasions together, as we've had the privilege to do uh, in the past. Um, and, and, and on top of that, just getting back for a moment to the, to the parade the thing, on top of that, maybe uh, rabbinic leaders should be out there saying, you know what, let's bring so many tens of thousands of people to Fifth Avenue that day that will completely drown out any possibility of groups that might be questionable who are attending. Maybe that should be the attitude. And they should have positive signs and signs that, that help educate because you think of all the people who see this. And, of course, the picture will be, if, if, if anything untoward happens, yeah. will be that, and all the rest of the positive message will be lost. Ron Pundak, architect of the 1993 Oslo Accords, died Friday at the age of 59 after a lengthy battle with an illness. I assume he's somebody you knew pretty well. No, I did not know him uh, very well, but I, I did meet him many times. Uh, he was uh, very involved in the... Uh, in, he was considered the guy behind the 1993 Oslo Accords, he died, I think, at 59. So any Oslo fans, we have him to thank. Oh, him and, well, he didn't, he couldn't do it alone. He, he was one of the people who was involved in, in uh, opening the secret channels of communication between Israel then and the PLO. And, uh, you know, he was chairman of the Israeli Peace Now uh, NGO. So you didn't know, like, 20 years later, if he, if he felt his efforts were worthwhile or not. That's a... That's you know we we wouldn't know who had a conversation like that with him. No, I do not. Um, the I always thought, and I don't know why I always thought that I always thought that Uri Savir was given credit as the one who opened up the channel secretly to Oslo. Was that was he also involved or? He was involved. I don't think he was uh, an architect. He was you know obviously very close and, and worked closely with uh, Shimon Peres. And when he was at the foreign ministry, he was then consul general of New York. But he, he was involved and a supporter of it. But I think uh, Pundak was seen as, uh, as uh, the guy who breached the and, and established the bridge between the two sides. And uh, since we're focusing on some of the people who've uh, who've passed away in this conversation, did you know Robert Slater, Time Magazine? I knew him very well. I went to school with him, in fact. Meaning? At Temple University, I went to. Uh, he was a student there at the same time I was. So how would you evaluate his uh, his evaluation of Israel? He was a great friend and a great supporter of Israel. Really? Yes, sir. Absolutely. <laughs> Interesting. Um, he had a job, but he, I mean, I can tell you many times when he would call me to, to ask me for information to give the, the contrary view to, to uh, what was being uh, given to him. 
It, uh, unbelievable. I mean, you're speaking to somebody, you know, who, who was encouraged as a kid not to read Time Magazine because of their attitude. Well, he wasn't at Time Magazine the whole time. Uh. He, he, he did work for other uh, publications. And uh, I can tell you that uh, as an individual, he, uh, he, he, he made Aliyah. He lived in Israel. I think he wrote two dozen books. And um, he, he uh, you know, he wrote for, for the Jerusalem Report. And for other publications, so he was. Uh, again, can't just judge him by what rest of the magazine. Uh, yeah, understood. <clears throat> he was there for about twenty years. Um, all right. Uh, do you know why? Do, do you know whom Secretary of State John Kerry blames the breakdown of the Israel PA talks? You know, on whom he's blaming it. Well, I think some of them, judging by the reports, it would, judge, it would depend on which hour. <laughs> uh, but they all seem to be aimed at Israel. He has said that he was not blaming Israel. He did, I think, make a very unfortunate, quote, uh, comment when uh, in his testimony before the Senate, which was uh, roundly challenged by members of the Senate when he, when he said that Israel announced the 700 units. It wasn't clear, to I think, to people that this is in Gilo, a city of 40,000 people, a community of 40,000 people in the city of Jerusalem, um, and the uh, and holding up the prisoner release. The prisoner release was something contingent on Palestinians delivering and, and being at the table. When they walk away from the table, Israel had no obligation or responsibility to continue another release when, after the first three, produced nothing except the Palestinians taking and making more demands mm-hmm. than the Palestinians announcing and signing 15 accords or, or applications to join 15 conventions and therefore agencies. Today, the Swiss government announced, the Swiss foreign ministry, that they had accepted the letter that was sent and the application for the PA, though they called the Palestinian state, to be a, a signatory to the Geneva Convention, which opens up all sorts of prospects. But I think somebody better tell Abbas that it can work both ways, that you can become the subject of a lot of challenges as much as uh, you can make them uh, for, for, you know, bringing war crimes charges and, and the like. Uh, so uh, Secretary Kerry has gone to lengths to say that he was not blaming Israel, that he was putting responsibility on both. But I think the way the media certainly interpreted it and read what he did was was putting the onus, and then there were reports of, information that had been leaked in advance. So, um, as always, you know, the Palestinians walk away scot-free. They can violate everything. They can not live up to any commitment. And the onus is always shifted to Israel. And it goes back to the earlier threats about, you know, boycott. These things are the reasons why Abbas doesn't come to the table, in part, one, that he doesn't want to negotiate a deal with me. He thinks, look, all the pressure is not going to be on me. They're not going to do anything to me. They don't cut the funds. They don't do what we should do when they... Uh, move in violation of the agreement, yeah, and, but, and the agencies are in violation by accepting a non-state. But there's a more confusing part of this, and it, it, it's sort of like, you know, I, I'm, I am, I'm ready to concede that the U.S. has to take this approach, and I certainly am ready to concede that the PA in its head has no reason not to take the approach they're using. But it's Israel in the news this week that's so hard to understand. It seems that every day... We uh, we check the web, we open the papers, and one day Israel is expressing why it's important to get back to the table with the PA, and they need to do so as soon as possible. And on the other hand, you read that they're distancing themselves from the PA and don't want anyone to have the impression that they're anxious to get back to the table. Which one is it? 
No, they, first of all, Israel doesn't want to take the blame in the international community and give an excuse to, to all of those who are just chomping at the bit to continue the BDS-type actions to, to, to bring sanctions against Israel. And at the same time, Israel needs to show that the, to the Palestinians that this is not a one-side street, that Israel, which you know, transfers $100 million a month in, in tax money that they collect, they now say, okay, we're going to hold it and we're going to decide now, because there's a big debt owed to Israel from the Palestinian Authority. They don't pay for a lot of the uh, resources, uh, utilities at times, other things. So uh, there's pressure from inside Israel to, to take steps as well. And Netanyahu has reduced the contact with the PA because, you know, you sit there, you make an offer of prisoners. He offered even now more prisoners to get him back to the table. And Israel was forthcoming and yet gets slapped around and the, the PA uh, does even more at the same time that they say no to, to the talks, no to meeting even with Kerry at the time, no uh, um, uh, the absolute exercise of the right to return, no, never recognizing the Jewish state. I mean, they did all the no's. Right. And Israel's saying, what, what is this? I mean, it has to be some price. I don't even know if you know the answer to this question, but what's the current deal at right now? How many prisoners, Bargudi, Pollard, like what, what's in and what's not in right now? Yes. <laughs> we have no idea, right? We have no idea, and I, I, I don't know. What do you think the number is around? Do you have any idea what the number's around now? Because it was in the 20s, I think, the last time there was a report. No, that was the fourth tranche of the, the, uh, of the previous deal. The reports that they were talking about releasing up to 400 prisoners um, going back to the table, and obviously the Palestinians want Barghouti, which I think most Israelis would find uh, abhorrent, if certainly objectionable. Right. Um, so it will be in the hundreds if there's a, a negotiation right now. They'll be negotiating in the hundreds. It will be in the hundreds. Uh, I think that that will cause a lot of internal problems for uh, Netanyahu. In, in his I mean, will Bennett really leave if a deal like that goes through? Will he will he uh, break the coalition? Drawing the line so strong in the stand, I think it might be harder for him to to back off of it. Uh, the uh, you know that with the new sanctions that the Israel has taken um, with the the uh, diminution of contacts. Although the security coordination, I understand, is continuing uh, as before, um, you know this is a dance, and we have to see what what the next step, who who will move, and what the United States will do. They brought back the envoy; he's here for consultations, and I guess for Yantiv. And then uh, uh, I believe that ultimately they'll go back to the table. What did you think in general of Kerry's presentation on Capitol Hill? Because he had, not just with Israel, talking about Russia, Ukraine, Iran. I mean, he, he was he was hit with a lot of uh, tough shots this week. Yes, he was, and it's a tough time for the United States. Uh, you know, we have many challenges. I think the Russian challenge is, is still in the early stages. I think we're going to see much more. The satellite pictures show Russian troops, even planes, uh, being moved. Uh, you know, and and Russia feels that they can move with impunity, including. This trade deal with uh, with Iran that will open the floodgates, a $20 billion deal that bypasses the sanctions because it doesn't involve banks. We'll have to see if they go through. But the, it's not so much that the oil that Iran, Iran sells to Russia, but it's what Russia is giving in return, which may include missiles. It could include the S-300. Uh, and they could use that as uh, ways to, quote, punish the United States and the West for what they're doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Ukraine. And this is all escalating at this time, and I think people don't really understand how serious this moment is in, in many respects, that the, um, that the, 
and the worst thing is goes back to what I just said that there's never a price that Iran can send a shipload right. of missiles to terrorists in violation of all the sanctions. Thank God Israel intercepted it, the Class C. But there's not a price that you can challenge the United States in West. You can take these kind of aggressive actions. And in fact, aside from uh, some sanctions, which may hurt, may affect them, but is not decisive, that people, that uh, rogue states feel like China could even do it, or certainly Korea, that it's the time to exercise your options because everybody's preoccupied and there's not going to be a price. You mentioned last week about the um, uh, this 1979 hostage taker who was proposed as ambassador, was it? Yes. From Iran, so the House went ahead and rejected his ability to come to the U.S. Is that what happened? The Senate. The Senate. It was the Senate. Now, does that have teeth? Does it matter? Like, is that symbolic? How? What well, is they it? Can't. It's, it's really administration, but the administration has said very clearly that this is objectionable. It's not acceptable to have a guy who, who now claims he wasn't one of the hostage takers. He only later was their negotiator and their translator. Since when do you remember that was kind of defenses from people who participate in horrific crimes and then say, well, I was just, you know, associated there. Yeah, negotiator. I don't, I don't even remember a negotiation. <laughs> so he, the words that ultimately released him, but yeah. he was clearly involved. And, but, but to me, the important part is that the Iranian thinking saying, we know that there's going to be a reaction to the appointment. I mean, they got, Tens of millions of people, they couldn't have found somebody else to be the, the yeah. U.N. ambassador. But it's a way to stick it to the U.S. It's a, it's a challenge to us, and it's, I think, a, such a deep insult to the families, to the American people. And they're waiting to see how we respond. And they're going to wait to see. And if we cut it off, then they you know, will say, well, it's a violation of headquarters agreement, et cetera, et cetera. I think the United States has to say that, the, as the Senate is saying, people who are involved in terrorist activities are not going to be welcome to come to the United States. They're not going to give them visas. I read this morning, uh, I don't even know where I read it, but I read this morning an article describing the um, that as, as fearful as we are about the nuclear uh, potential that Iran has, their conventional military is not nearly as strong as one would suspect. Now, from a you know, military political science viewpoint, is that important? If, if in fact, uh, they, they, they will reach nuclear capability, uh, does it matter if their conventional military is strong or not? Sure it matters, uh, because it, it's their ability to really stand up. The thing is that, that Russia is not a great power. It's not a superpower today anymore. It may be relative to some, but, but to, to some states, but it is not a great power. Its economy is is very weak, and the uh, its military is not that big and not that strong that it couldn't be challenged by effective coalition of American and Europeans and others to to defend the countries of Europe. Each time another sec- segment of a country or a, or 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 a country will fall to to this new thrust, and you see the the president Aliyev of of Azerbaijan went to Iran. I believe even though they have terrible relations, because he's afraid of the Russian uh, moves uh, going to come there, or Kazakhstan, uh, or Georgia, let alone Moldova, let alone the, the Baltics and other areas where we see this aggressiveness. And it's only when they see the determination to stop them. And, and all of this is also read, as I said, by the Iranians, by others, who uh, will take advantage of this and just and, and it's open season and unless we really put our foot down in the, those nobody would want to see a war same person wants to see a war between the united states and, and russia 
I don't think that that is necessarily the option to to this uh, situation because I don't think Russia is prepared to go to war. They can cut off the gas supplies or energy supplies, and we have to work to create alternatives now, regardless of this, so that we're not they're not dependent on uh, Russian supplies in the future. Uh, but you know, I'd say just threatening sanctions if this Iran deal goes through, if other things happen. And in the meantime, we had the Iran negotiations. The Russians say, the delegate there says, oh, we're not looking for results now. We're looking to set the parameters for the next round of talks. So the next round is now set at May 13th, which is exactly what we said at the beginning, that what the Iranians will do with the backing Russians is to gain time, buy time, more time, more time, more time. In the meantime, in 2014, by the end of this year, the IMF says they'll be out of the recession. We see that the amount of Oil they're selling is, is reaching uh, greater and greater numbers. The head of their Iran Atomic Energy Agency, the one that was Abbasi, said that he lied, that they lied all the time. Right. I mean, he says it publicly. And then there is no, uh, uh, there's even about Iraq, about the production facilities, about facilities they didn't tell the International Atomic Energy Agency about. And you have to believe them. These guys are telling the truth, and they're challenging the West all the time. The one good news countering it is that Israel launched another satellite, the seventh satellite, a very effect 10, that just went up and will keep an eye, I think, on what the Iranians are doing. Well, let's hope. Um, before we go to your final message before Passover 5774, on the subject of freedom, I see you in the conference uh, released a statement this week in support of uh, Cuban prisoner Alan Gross. We did, and it's a, it's a very important message, and we think... Every time on Pesach, those who are in prison, Pollard, Bashkin, Mr. Gross, others who, who um, Warren Levinson, who's uh, too often forgotten, that uh, we want to see everybody being able to be home at the Sudarim, um, that, the, uh, that this case of a guy who was working for the USAID uh, and was there to build communications connections with the Jewish community in Cuba, has now sat for more than four years, and he began a hunger strike, um, which um, uh, he's, he's already lost 10 pounds, but he had lost 110 pounds before. It is, he's not in good uh, physical condition. And I think that, that uh, people should remember uh, them and all the others who are imprisoned or are suffering, who are um, being discriminated against in this era and face dangers. Um, that uh, we don't take freedom for granted, and, and it's the message for Pesach that you don't never take freedom for granted, and, and that thinking that these things are automatic, and we take our own conditions and our own situation, the fact that we have the ability, but when we see anti-Semitism rising again, the whole Seder warns us about how to deal with it and teaches us. Rami Oved Avi, the whole uh, lessons about all those who challenged us, and, and Mitzrayim being the epitome of it and the example of it, but the replication throughout time, you know, the BDS movement is not new. We see the Mitzrayim where, where uh, Barrow says, we've got to deal shrewdly, not because they did anything wrong. He said they're growing strong, they're in power, but not, they didn't do anything but contribute to the country. And it says by Oreo that they, did, that they wronged the Jews, People say, why that formulation? And the answer is because that's the right formulation, that before they could impose slavery, they had to wrong the Jews. Hitler had to wrong the Jews before he could carry out uh, what ultimately became the final solution. 
because you had to show the Jews are responsible for the ills that befell society. They're making them the scapegoat. And then people are ready to accept it. The BDS movement is doing the same thing, and that's why people are so sensitive to why it's so objectionable when you see young Jews and little and or non-Jews uh, on campuses or businesses or others falling victim to it. It's not harmless. It's not insignificant. It is the root of what we have experienced through the day, that this is an attempt to delegitimize us, to isolate us, to say that we don't have the standing of others, that we have, that you can be subject to all of this mistreatment, unjustified as it is. And today it's directed at the collective Jew, the state of Israel. Mm, no question about it. Important message as we sit down to the Seder on Monday night. And yet another one that uh, that you and I have emphasized over the last couple of weeks, and that is that uh, if you're able to gather with family and friends, and especially if it's multi-generational, this coming Monday night, don't take it for granted. Most Jews in Jewish history did not have that opportunity. That's true, and there's still a lot of Jews today who don't have it. All right. Or Malcolm, people. I take this opportunity to wish you a Chag Kasher V'Sameach, and we will reconvene, uh, please God, in two weeks from now. God willing, and should have happy matzahs, a great Seder, and to everyone. We hope that this will be the last one in Golis. Oh, I'm main to that. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Two weeks from today, we'll pick up with the weekly update Friday morning at 7.40 Eastern Time right here at JM in the AM. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure we present Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Uden. Good morning, Nachum. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. And what a good Erev Shabbos this is. This Shabbos, please God, is Shabbos HaGodol. The Kriyas HaTorah for this Shabbos is that of Parshas Acharimos, which according to the Chinuch contains two positive mitzvos and 26 losases, negative mitzvos. The parsha begins with the specific avoda of Yom HaKippurim, the Achas Pashana, that which happened but once a year, that the Kohen Gadol went into the Holy of Holies, and the parsha ends with the detailed laws of morality, the Arayos, and how the land of Israel cannot tolerate immorality. This Shabbos has a distinction of being called Shabbos HaGadol, the Shabbos before Pesach. Primarily, number one, because of the Haftorah that we read this Shabbos. The very last Navi that we had was Malachi, and we read from the end of his Sefer. The Navi promised us that he, meaning God, is going to send Elio Hanavi, the prophet Elijah, the Fnei Bo Yom Hashem HaGodol. One of the jobs of Elijah is going to be to announce the coming of Moshiach. Moshiach is going to come. Eliyoah Navi is going to come. Our pouring of that fifth cup, symbolizing the future redemption. All this is happening this coming Shabbos. In addition, a very interesting reason why it's called Shabbos HaGadol is because this coming week, there are really two Shabbos. This Shabbos, meaning tomorrow, as well as the Torah tells us that we start counting the Omer, Mimacharas 
Hashabbos. We start counting the Omer next week. The first Seder is Monday night, and Tuesday is the first day of Yom Tov. And the Torah says, Tuesday is the 15th, Mimacharas Hashabbos. On the 16th, we already start counting the Omer, Tuesday night. And so, Tuesday has a designation as Shabbos from the Torah. Hence, this coming Shabbos, the day after tomorrow, is Shabbos Hagodol compared to the second one. The rabbis tell us the year that we left Egypt, we left on a Thursday, and on that prior Shabbos, on the 10th of the month, we experienced two very significant miracles. Number one, Moshe warned the people of Mitzrayim that the firstborn would be killed. The firstborn came to Paro and they demonstrated, let them go. And Paro said no. There was a civil war and many, many of the Egyptians were killed out by the Egyptians. As we say in Halil HaGadol, Lamake Mitzrayim Bivchoreyem. God smote the Egyptians through their firstborn. And the second miracle is we designated the Paschal Lamb, tied it to our bedposts, and when the Egyptians asked, what are you doing? What's that noise? What's happening with the Lamb? Now the Egyptians worshipped the Lamb, and we told them, we're going to slaughter your God, and they were defenseless, to retaliate, that occurred on the 10th of the month, which was a Shabbos, and we remember that by calling this Shabbos, Shabbos HaGadol. Traditionally, the rabbis throughout the Jewish world give a different kind of talk on Shabbos HaGadol. They review the laws of the Seder, because they are complex the laws of selling chametz, the laws of beetle chametz, the laws of beer chametz, and all the different aspects of the Seder. I'd like to therefore change from our usual presentation of an aspect of the Parsha and give a short Shabbos Hagodol Drasha, whereby I'd like to demonstrate how, while we do not yet have the Korban Pesach, the Paschal Lamb, it impacts upon us in at least nine different ways. And the idea regarding the Korban Pesach is one of the only two positive mitzvos in the Torah that has a punishment with it if one neglects to participate therein. Karban Pesach and Mila are the only two out of the 248 positive mitzvos that have the punishment, any punishment, and the punishment of kares, being cut off from our people. To begin with, let's start with a very interesting idea. Pesach 
does not begin this coming Monday night, the Yom Tov, until candle lighting in the New York area is approximately 7.17. And so, I would be a sport, and I would stop eating chametz 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It's not yet Pesach. There's only one reason why we stop eating Pesach from the Torah at mid the day. And from the rabbis, we stop two hours earlier, lest we come to violate the law as found in the fifth book of the Torah in chapter 16 that we're going to read, please God, on Achron Shal Pesach, the last day, Pesach 3, Lo Sochal Olov Chameitz, you are not to eat chametz, you're not to possess chametz from the time of the Korban Pesach. And since the Korban Pesach was brought in the afternoon, that is when biblically the prohibition of chametz sets in, even though technically it's not yet Pesach, and as I said, the rabbis moved it up two hours earlier. So, the reason why we don't eat chametz on Erev Pesach is because of the Korban Pesach. Interestingly, the first Mishnah in the fourth Perek of Psachim tells us that it depended on one's local custom. In your community, did they work Erev Pesach in the morning? If they did, you're permitted to. In other communities where they did not work, you were not permitted to. What's going on here? In the afternoon, Manishtana, Erev Pesach from Erev Sukkot and Erev Shavuos, you're allowed to work on Erev Pesach, excuse me, on Erev Shavuos and on Erev Sukkos. But Erev Pesach itself is a Yom Tov. From the afternoon and on, ideally, we should not work at our jobs. Yes, we can complete whatever tasks have to be done at home. I can get in my car and drive to the store to pick up the last few items that I might need. But to be at my job on that, quote, 9 to 5, don't, you don't have to lose your job because of Erev Pesach, but ideally you should know that Erev Pesach itself is a Yom Tov. And for that reason, we're going to go to number three. There should only be happy occasions in all our families. But if God forbid somebody is sitting Shiva and a Yom Tov comes, so Rabbi, when do I get up from Shiva that Yom Tov comes and breaks the Shiva? And the answer is, as much time as you need to prepare for the Yom Tov. You're permitted to bathe before the Yom Tov if you're getting up from Shiva. You need an hour to Yom Tov, then you'll sit Shiva to an hour before. You need two hours appropriately. But Erev Pesach is the only time, not on a Friday. Terribly, people make the mistake that they get up from Shiva during the year at mid the day on Friday. That's a mistake, says the Shulchan Aruch. The only one day of the year that you get up at mid the day from Shiva is Erev Pesach. Why? Because Erev Pesach itself is a Yom Tov because of the Korban Pesach that was brought in the afternoon. And number four, very interesting. In many Jewish communities, 
and congregations. Families are taking in Shabbos early, as we find in Shulchan Aruch. By Hilcho Shabbos, Shinayan Zayan, Shin You can take Shabbos in early. However, you cannot take Pesach in early. Oh, come on. We have elderly parents. We have young children. Why can't we take Pesach early? Shabbos is more strict than Yom Tov. And there's one answer. The answer to that is, that's right, the Korban Pesach. The Torah says in conjunction with the Korban Pesach, in Perek Yubes, chapter 12, Pasuk 8, the Torah says, V'ochlu basar, you are to eat the Korban Pesach, on this night, it has to be definitively night, and the Mishnah Brewer tells us that all the mitzvos of the night, including the mitzvos to Rabbanon, including the Arba Kosos, are equated to the Korban Pesach, and therefore you have to wait until nighttime to start your Pesach Seder, and you can't, quote, take in Yom Tov early as you could do Shabbos throughout the year. Moving on, number five, in terms of how the Korban Pesach impacts. How does the Seder begin? Kadesh, Kiddush, we make Kiddush all year long. Yes, everybody has to drink, and everybody has to drink a Revius or Rove Revius, and yes, we drink leaning, etc. But, Kiddush is something that we can all relate to. What's this next thing, Orchatz, that literally we wash our hands without a bracha? Why? So you should know the Orchatz. The Urchatz, the washing of the hands, is because of the next thing, namely karpas, the vegetable that we are going to dip in salt water. And the Talmud teaches us in Psachim 115a, Rav Oshia taught that whatever is dipped in liquid requires the washing of the hands. And there are seven liquids, but we're talking primarily now about water. And so in reality, this is not something which is unique to the Pesach Seder. And indeed, the Taz, with a little bit of a sense of humor, asks on this practice, Manishtana Laila Zemikola Lelos. We do this all year long. Well, most people don't do this all year long because it has to do with the intricacies of Tumah and Tahara, purity and impurity. The rabbis said that our hands have a status of Shneos Tumah, that they have a secondary degree of Tumah, of impurity. And the idea is water is a conductor and so of Tumah. And so if I have... And don't eat the karpas, the vegetable, with a fork. You'll be defeating the whole purpose of washing your hands. We therefore wash our hands before we eat the karpas in order that when we touch the vegetable with our hands, the come on, the impurity of our hands has been removed and we don't render the food impure. Now, What's going on here? So the Nitziv, in his introduction to his Haggadah, tells us that tonight, because of the Karban Pesach, we conduct ourselves in a way to remind us 
of how things were done when we had a Korban Pesach in the Beis HaMikdash. And for that reason, he suggests as well that we wear the white kittel because that, he suggests, is what people ate when they ate Kachim in the Beis HaMikdash. And moving on, number six. What is the menu at the Pesach Seder? Ashkenazim do not eat roasted meat. Sfardim do eat roasted meat. But understand why. The Ashkenazim who don't is because the Korban Pesach was. And so it dominates. We don't want to give the impression that. And the Sfardim are saying it because we want to remind ourselves what we will be doing it. It's not a question of... (coughs) Excuse me. Ashkenaz or Sfard, it's a question of how the Korban Pesach impacts in this positive way on our menu on this night. Maror, the mitzvah of eating the bitter herb, is only rabbinic nowadays. Why? Because unlike matzah, that's biblical today, because there's a separate verse in the Torah that says, Bo'erev tochlu matzos, that there is a mitzvah to eat matzah on the night of the Pesach Seder. Maror is only found in the Torah, both in Parshas Bo and in Parshas Baloscha, in conjunction with the Korban Pesach, Amatzos umrorim yochluhu. And so when we had a Karban Pesach, and when we will have again, then Maror will be upgraded to a biblical mitzvah. Nowadays, it is rabbinic, and it's important to know that. If somebody cannot eat that much Maror, we can be more lenient on the size of the kezayis of Maror, because it is rabbinic. Finally, number eight, our eating of the afikoman at the end of the meal, why? So the Rush says that the Afikoman is a zecher of the Korban Pesach. And the Korban Pesach was eaten a la sova. It was eaten when you were satiated at the end of the meal. And we remember the Korban Pesach by eating the Afikoman. And finally, the last, the 15th stage of the Seder is Nirtzah. Now, what does Nirtzah mean? So, the Rav Salavechik, Zechronel of Racha, pointed out that you find the term Nirtzah in conjunction with Korbanos. The Nirtzolo lechaper olav, namely, that it should be a atonement. And it, we therefore pray at the end of the Seder, that Chasal Seder Pesach, we pray that now that we have completed our Seder, it should be Nirtzah, it should be accepted, it should be pleasing to God, as if this was the actual bringing of the Korban. And so, the Korban Pesach, while we don't have it yet, literally has such a strong domination over the Erev Yom Tov and the night of the Pesach experience. I just want to close with the idea that the Korban Pesach in Egypt 
was brought at and in the home. There was no Beis HaMikdash then. Each home became that significant Mikdash. Instead of a Mizbeach of an altar, the blood was placed on the doors, on the door frame, on the mezuzah, on the mashkov, and demonstrating that the home is the source of where Kedusha, where sanctity resides within the Jewish people. The Torah tells us in chapter 12, verse 22, that in Mitzrayim, what were they commanded after they were told to put the blood on the doorpost? The Atim Lo Ishmi Pesach Beso Ad Boker. You, the Jewish people, are not to leave literally the entrance of his house until the morning. The literal translation is it happened once in Jewish history, in Mitzrayim, that we were not to see literally the Egyptians die. We were not to run amok and wild in Egypt that night, points out Rev Hirsch. But the Meshachachma says something so powerful that beyond the literal explanation is that beautiful teaching throughout the generations that we are to safeguard the sanctity of the Jewish home, ad boker, until literally till morning, until the time that Moshiach comes, till the end of the Gullus, which is compared tonight. The idea being, and the importance of recognizing that the Jewish home is a home which is different in terms of its values. The Jewish home is one where mommy and daddy, where the parents are of one voice and one mind, and this is where the this is where, and this is our response to that Pew report, which was so ostensibly negative. How can we combat it? We can combat it with fortifying the Jewish home, where there's value, where even though throughout the day, the work day, where we have to interact with society and in the universities and all around us where we interact with society it is the Jewish home which provides the values it is a Jewish home which provides the safety and the guarantee of our tradition of our lifestyle of our Torah and this is what we need to be reminded of this coming Monday night as we are going to celebrate the Pesach Seder in our homes, welcoming our homes to friends and relatives more observant, less observant. We're all connected. We're all made to understand that God chose us and it's symbolized by that which He did for us in Egypt and that which He continues to do for us throughout the history. The State of Israel today, best proof of just that. 
But just as in Egypt, we had to take the first step before the firstborn of the Jewish people were saved. We had to put the blood on the door. So too, we have to constantly take those steps and initiative to safeguard our home, to make sure that the right values are being brought into our home and that the wrong values are kept out of our home. And in that way, Please, God, speedily in our day, we will merit that we, too, will have the third Pesach Migdash and to be able to enjoy the Korban Pesach. Shabbat Shalom to all. J.M. in the A.M. The uh, <laughs> the singable Seder CD, they actually call themselves the Charosis Choir. I <laughs> uh, hope they have, don't have too much wine in the Charosis Choir. Uh, that's Kadesh Orachat. Figured that was the best way after Rabbi Yudin's presentation to uh, wrap it all up by remembering what we're doing Monday night and all the different symbols of the Seder that we will be, uh, and steps of the Seder, that we will be embarking on. Uh, Monday, of course, Rabbi Yudin will join us. Uh, we'll be down in Florida, Rabbi Goldwasser, in the 7 o'clock hour with the Seum. And in the 8 o'clock hour, Rabbi Yudin will speak specifically about Seder night. That is all happening this coming Monday, Erev Pesach at JM in the AM. We have an amazing edition of uh, Naomi Nachman's show coming up here at JM in the AM. Um, 
both in audio and video fashion. You could actually hear and watch. If you go to NahumSingle.com, you could watch Naomi 10 minutes from now on our stream, or I should say on our site, uh, with Table for Two. That's coming up, her pre-Pesach show between 9 and 10 Eastern Time, right after JM and the AM. Then, of course, an amazing music mix all day long with a big thank you and a chag kosher v'sameach to our friends at Kedem. That'll happen all the way until candle lighting time. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Achrei Mos, Erev Shabbos Haggadol, candle lighting at 7.12. Many synagogues will begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Mazel Tov to Lauren and Svi Hagler, Kew Gardens Hills, New York. Lauren and Svi had a brand new baby boy this morning. Looks like a Cholamoid Bris. Mazal Tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. And, of course, to the uh, Kirschenbaum family and the Hagler family, Richie, Sherry, everybody. Mazal tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. Wonderful to share. Oh, yeah, Uncle Ellie, that's right. Uncle Ellie gets a special Mazal tov greeting as well. Uh, by the way, on Twitter, the Nahum Siegel Network has 1,899 followers. You could be the 1,900th if you go to at Nahum Siegel Net right now and uh, follow us. Which would be pretty cool if we wrapped up the show like that, wouldn't you say? Benny Friedman at JM in the AM.
Medley from Benny Friedman's Shabbos with Benny Friedman's CD. Matis has JM Sunday live this coming Sunday morning, 7 a.m. Eastern time on the stream, jmandtheam.org. Make sure to be tuned in. JM and the AM is now six days a week. JM Sunday starts at 7 a.m. Eastern time with Matis right here on our stream at jmandtheam.org. Time to say good Shabbos. Journeys at JM and the AM.
Achenu Yisrael and Achim Achem, our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Well, thank you so much. Don't forget Sunday, it's Matis with JM Sunday. Saturday night, tomorrow night, Avrami hosts Saturday Night Seagull. And don't forget that Monday we'll be down in Florida. Erev Pesach show will emanate from legendary destinations, and we will be on the air between 6 and 9 a.m. Short week next week, or I should say a different type of week. We'll be off the air Tuesday and Wednesday for Yuntif, and then Thursday and Friday be back on with our Chol Hamoid programming. Have a wonderful Shabbos, a great weekend. We'll speak to you again Monday morning. Till then, Nachum Sigal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.